Man, again, good to be back. I'm excited. I got the butterflies. I love seeing y'all, and I, I, I love talking about God and about His things, and so I'm blessed. I'm, I'm blessed to be able to open up the Word of God and to study from His Word with you all, and, and I, I want to extend a, a warm and a hearty welcome to everyone that's here and those that came back from the AM service and are back again, and those that may be visiting, and just, just everyone that's here, you've, you've blessed me so much with your presence, you've blessed all of us, encouraged all of us by being interested in God and being interested in His things, and, and that's my prayer, that we're, that we're, we're all here for, for God, and for His Word, and for the things that He's given to us, and in such a way, you'd be benefited very much if that is your intention, to be opening up in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 9, where we will be reading from in just a minute. That's 2 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 9. It's going to frame up most of the lesson. But also to add a frame to the lesson, I'd like to, I'd like to talk to you guys from a very personal place. And what I'm about to say to you might come as quite the shock. I'm sorry guys, I'm, I, I, I'm just not perfect. I know. I know, it's hard for me to believe too. But it's true. And actually, actually I've never been perfect. Not, not once, not even, not even a little bit. You see, in school growing up, I was loud, I was rude, I was brash, I was constantly picking at people and at teachers and, and didn't have very good manners. I got black marks all over my conduct sheets. I got in fights, I didn't pay attention. I cut class when I could. And I wasn't the best kid. Still though, the system just kept, just kept pushing me along. And they just kept pushing me through. And I, looking back, I don't even know why. I don't even know why they had any hope for me. I think that, I think that the reason that I, I was able to climb from elementary school, from being a, a snot-nosed little kid that was wiping my boogers on stuff and yelling and, and just being a nuisance to middle school where I was listening to way too much angsty emo rock and, and hating life to, to high school where I was running around being an absolute heathen. I'd, I just look back and I wonder, what was it? that was just pushing me along this whole time. How, how was I able to make it this far? And I think, I think it was because that along the way, someone, someone saw potential in me. Someone saw, someone saw something in me that was, that was redeemable. And of course, you all know who I'm talking about. I'm talking about God. You know, most of the people that would have known me when I was a kid would have said, that kid doesn't have a shot at being anything. There were a few people who believed in me, I think, but I think God, I know God believed in me, and He knew who I could become, even when I didn't believe in Him. And so, despite my bad attitude and my rebellion, that's permeated even to my adult life now, why has God given me so many second chances? Again and again, God has given me chance after chance. What do you call that? can't understand it. Fully, I can't wrap my head around it fully, but what do you call that? I mean, I, I call that grace. And I'm thankful for that. And I'm certain that the reason that he's, he's given me so many chances, and he's given all of us so many chances and, and spared our lives to this point, is so that, so that we could have this moment. So that we could have this moment to appreciate and to worship him. And that we could have, we could have the next moment and the moment after that to worship and to honor and to glory him. Because if we look in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 9, 
We can read about how the Apostle Paul, he was looking at himself and, and, and he, that thorn in the flesh had, had made him realize that, that he wasn't perfect either, that, that he'd been bad on occasion. Now, he might have a few black marks on his conduct record, but what did he say? Paul said, he said to me, God said this to Paul, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. My power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, Paul said, I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. So what I get, what I see in my head, what I picture in my head, when the apostle here is talking about how God's grace is sufficient, that his power is made perfect in weakness, what I see is I see the image of my heart and of the apostle Paul's heart and of all the cracks and of all the breaks and of all the disheveled pieces and the dust that had been collecting in certain areas that had been neglected. And I see God cleansing those. And I see God filling up the gaps that I can't. And so, Paul talks about power. The power of Christ resting upon him. He talks about power that, that comes through grace. That comes through this concept of grace. And, and that's really, that's what I want to talk about today. Is that the, the power that we find in grace. The power of, the power of, the power of God's grace, particularly. Such a powerful thing. And we don't always think of it that way. We don't think about the nuances of, of the effect of grace. The, just the potency of it. And so tonight, I'd like to take this time to demonstrate the potency of God's grace in the face of our own weakness and of our own impermanence and show you, if we'll focus our minds together, I'll show you how God's grace can have a powerful effect in your own life and how that can ripple out and that can affect other people's lives as well. But before we get too deep into the discussion of, of, of what, really the, what really the power of grace is, we have to talk about what grace is. What are we defining as grace? It seems fundamental, and it's, it is. It's a, it's a vital building block for us to understand the, the, the entire religion that Christ has left behind for us to, to be a part of and the spirituality of it. We ha- but, but we cannot revisit the basics enough. We've got, to, we've got to go back and we've got to understand these and appreciate these because we can't just let them collect dust, like I said. So we've got to define grace. And I think the best way that we can define grace is, again, in a very basic and a very fundamental place in Genesis chapter 1 and verse 1, where we read about how God created the heavens and the earth. God is he's a loving being. It's love itself. He poured out this awesome, this glorious creation, and breathed into it and gave us all of this from a formless void, from chaos, from nothingness. With, with no order, God gave organization. He gave all the things that we count as beautiful, and, and, and he, he did that with a word. He breathed life into Adam and Eve, and He figuratively set the table for them to abide with Him forever. He gave them everything that they needed to continue to persist with him in bliss in the garden. But what do we, ha- what do we read happens with Adam and Eve? In, in Genesis chapter 3, where in verse 3, where God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. So he gave one command. He gave them everything. And one command. He gave them everything they needed, and just one command. But, we know that they, that they violated that law. And that though God gave 100% of His love, pure love, devotion, and passion, that they responded with a tainted effort, less than 100%. And we know that 
that we're guilty of that as well because we read about how we've all sinned and we've all fallen short of the glory of God. That's Romans chapter 3 and verse 23. Nobody in this room, if, you, if you're brazen enough, you can stand up right now and tell me that you've never sinned. That's what I thought. And, and, and me, when I look in the mirror, I know, that, I know that I've sinned and I know that I'm imperfect. And I have to keep reminding myself or my pride will get out in front of me. You all know me. But I have to keep reminding myself of that. It's not to, to just coldly acknowledge the fact that I've sinned. But to let myself feel the weight of it. To be okay with the sorrow that comes from knowing that I've sinned and to, to accept that. And to know that the results of our sinning in Romans chapter 6 and verse 23 is death. That the wages of sin is death. That, that the price for our actions is death. Coming to this, letting ourselves feel the weight of it, we naturally know the next point we can define grace for ourselves just naturally. If I find myself in this spot where I've messed up, and it's my fault. And I, I can't do anything to go back in the past and make it right again. What do I do? I reach out my hands. I say, help me out. Someone, please, give me, give me what I lack. Help me here. If you're hungry, you know the feeling. You're praying that someone will have grace to you. You're hoping that someone will give you something to eat. If you don't have a place to rest your head, you want that. You want someone to open up their home to you. And we all understand that. So we understand grace and we understand our own imperfection and our own weakness and our own dependence. When we can get rid of our pride and we can look in the mirror and say, I know that I'm not perfect. And we can cope with that and we can start working through that in our head. And when we do that, we realize we're asking for unmerited favor from God. Because we can't earn that, right? When God gave us everything and we threw it back in his face, there's no way we can make that right again of ourselves. We can't, we can't be righteous of ourselves. So think, think of a smaller scale metaphor. If you're a student and you're in a classroom and you're sitting here with a 42% and you really need to pass this class, what are you going to do? You're going to counsel with the teacher. You're going to talk with them. You're going to say, what can I do? Will you just pull it up from a 42 to a 95? <laughs> And what you're asking for is you're asking for something you didn't earn. We know that feeling. You're, imagine you're at work and your boss kind of ushers you into the office and sits you down. And they're trying to give you that pink slip. They're trying to send you out the door. Well, what are you going to say? Can, can I just get transferred to another department? Can you just give me a few more months? Please, I need this. Well, what are you asking for? That's That's grace. So we know what that is. We know, we know that we want that. And what we're asking for here is a much larger scale. What we're asking for in regards to our soul, in regards to eternity, is grace from God. And that's a powerful thing, and that's a heavy thing. And so that we should, we should want what God has to offer in His grace, just like we should want that rounded up score in that class, or to keep our job, or, or, or to, to, to get food when we're hungry. Or whatever it may be that, that, that we seek. We should seek God's grace fer- more fervently than any of those things. And what I'm going to do is, I'm going to take this time, and I'm going to show you why. Step by step, I'm going to show you why. So what does grace do for us? What's so powerful about it? Well, three things. There's three things. But the first thing, the first thing that grace does, is that grace is going to teach us something. It's going to teach us many things. If we let God reign in our hearts, we know he's a merciful king, and then, then we'll know that the first of those great and those powerful benefits 
are the instructions of the king, the advice of the king. God's grace, it teaches us how to conduct ourselves. If you look in Titus in chapter 2 and look at verses 11 and 12 in Titus chapter 2 verses 11 and 12. I'll show you this from Titus chapter 2. Just look with me there please. Where Paul wrote to to Titus, a, a young evangelist. Titus chapter 2 verse 11 through 12. For the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation for all people training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled upright and godly lives in the present age. God's grace from here in Titus it trains us it teaches us how we ought to behave, how we ought to act, how we, how we ought to conduct ourselves and the people that we ought to be. And how does it do that? What almost seems paradoxical, the very thing that warrants grace is the thing that grace teaches us to abstain from, our sin. See, the fact that we've sinned and that we were enslaved to that means that, yes, as we discussed earlier, I want to be set free from that even though I can't do it of myself. So then... As I, as I learn from that, as I'm set free like a prisoner who has been set free on good behavior, I, ch- I look at the path that I've taken in the past, and though it did lead to the grace that I have now, I'd rather just stay on the straight and narrow to begin with. I'd rather not go back to prison. I'd rather not live that selfish path and instead take the opposite route and be selfless and be charitable. And so what we have is we have a grace from God that is sufficient. To teach us. We don't think about this all the time. We don't think about grace as a teaching tool, do we? We think about it as something that we receive, not something that, that spurs us on to action. But, but truly it does. It teaches us. Paul put it the best when he, sh- he said, Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. Grace teaches us to stray from sin. Let's look at a practical example of what I'm talking about, of, of what kind of person understands this principle from the Old Testament in 1 Samuel chapter 4. We see this example of King David and his treatment of Mephibosheth, if I can even pronounce his name properly. I think that was right. His treatment of Mephibosheth, which Mephibosheth was David's best friend's son. That was, that was Jonathan's son. And Jonathan was the son of Saul, who, who was a king in Israel. Very wicked king, for that matter. And, and Jonathan and Saul, they had both been, they'd both have been stricken down in battle. And so, normally what happens when something like this, when a, when a particular royal family takes a hit like that, losing both gr- the, the current patriarch and then the, the follow-up prince, well, what do you do? The, the family began to flee. They... They took young Mephibosheth and they fled because of the potential political backlash that could occur from something like this. Well, Mephibosheth, if we look in 1 Samuel chapter 4 and verse 4, Mephibosheth, something happened to him and it was an accident. It was just an accident. It was just circumstance. But, but in 1 Samuel chapter 4 and verse 4, Jonathan, the son of Saul, had a son who was crippled in his feet. He was five years old when the news about Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel. And his nurse took him up and fled. And as she fled in her haste, he fell and became lame. And his name was Mephibosheth. So, so this kid, five years old, he's, he's being dragged along, maybe carried. And somewhere along the way, his nurse stumbles and he falls and it cripples him in both of his feet. And this is just a circumstance that he has to live with. Fast forward a little bit. Fast forward a little bit. By the time we get to 1 Samuel chapter 9... King David has been reigning officially as king now. 
He's replaced Saul, and he's gained a lot of power and a lot of influence and a lot of respect. So what does he do with this? He uses it. He uses it to search out kindness to someone. And he found the perfect opportunity in Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan. So let's look in uh, verse 6. 1 Samuel chapter 9 and verse 6. And Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and paid homage. And David said, Mephibosheth. And he answered, Behold, I am your servant. And David said to him, Do not fear, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan, and I will restore you to all the land of Saul your father, and you shall eat at my table always. And he paid homage and said, What is your servant, that you should show regard for such a dead dog as I? Mephibosheth, he understood grace as we've defined it in the beginning of this lesson. He understood, yeah, he was in a bad situation, but he didn't think that David owed him anything. He didn't demand anything from David, and quite the contrary. He, he understood that, that he needed help, and that, that he, he couldn't merit it. He couldn't work for it. Why? Because he was, he was lame. He was lame in both of his feet. That's what the Bible tells us. Back then, you couldn't, you couldn't find a good job when you can't even stand. Most of the jobs that men would do, they'd be physical labor, hard physical labor. Some of y'all know about that. But some of us, some of us have comfy little jobs where we can sit typing sermons all day, you know? But that, those jobs didn't exist. Those jobs didn't exist back then. And Mephibosheth, he couldn't work, he couldn't work to earn his way and to, to eat at the table of the king. So he, he, he was almost destined for a life of slums, scraping the bottom of the barrel. But look where he looks up, look where he ends up in 1 Samuel 9 and verse 13. So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem. For he ate always at the king's table. And I like that it says this here. And then it repeats. Now he was lame in both of his feet. I mean, here's this person who's literally physically unable to work and to merit this benefit. But yet he continues to persist in the king's court and in his good, good graces and in his service. David gave him grace. Why did David give him grace? What urged him to do that? I'm going to tell you and I'm going to put forth. I'm certain why David gave him grace. Because David was the kind of man that understood grace. And he understood grace from a godly perspective. We, the Psalm chapter, or the 51st Psalm, the 51st Psalm, Psalms 51. If we look there, we read David's words and how he entreated God for his grace. How he knew that he needed it. And he learned this from God. He said, have mercy on me, O God. According to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgression." Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So that, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity. And in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth and in the inward being. And you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Teach me wisdom. Why do you think that logically followed in David's head when he was just talking about how he needs forgiveness from God? Because he knew that that through God's grace, we learn who we ought to be and we become more wise as we truly and deeply understand that. And just like David so feverishly in Psalm 51 desired grace and sought after grace, and we see how it permeated in his life, we see how also in this psalm that David... 
He, he understood another thing about God's grace. Not just that it makes you wise, that it teaches you how you ought to be, but that, that it's going to cleanse him. He understood that grace cleanses. That grace completes incomplete people. That grace fills in the cracks. See, we did the same exact thing that Adam did. Not, not exactly. I'll, I'll correct myself. We didn't do exactly what Adam did. But in principle, we did exactly what he did. We figuratively bit the fruit. We have transgressed God's law. That was established. That we have stumbled. God's law that he established for us. We know that that means that we're subject to death because we've transgressed against God's law. But I'm putting forth to you all now that not only is God's grace sufficient to teach us who we ought to be, but God's grace is sufficient to cleanse us from the things that we ought not be. If we look in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 22, I'll show you, I'll show you a little bit of patterning. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 22, where Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 15, 22, For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. So as long as we continue to bite the fruit, so to speak, as Adam did, so long as we continue in our rebellion, we can't expect a cleansing. But in Christ, if we follow after his pattern, if we do what he set out for us to do, then we can be cleansed. Then we can be made right again. And I'm not saying... That we have to live, after being baptized, a perfectly, sinlessly perfect life to be in a right relationship with God. None of us can do that. We're going to fall short. But we have, to, we have to want to be that person. We have to strive for that constantly and be in this constant state of metamorphosis in our mind, of changing, of growing, and of moving, and of breathing in Christ and breathing out all the things that are dark and that are wicked within us. And changing. And, and, and forming this chrysalis and coming out and, and breaking free. If, if God's grace has been extended to us, then, 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 then that cleansing is something that has to happen. We have to be cleansed. We have to allow God's grace to cleanse us. We look in Second Chronicles 33. I think this is an excellent physical picture of, the, of, of what we need here. Of Second Chronicles chapter 33, uh, uh, we're going we're to look at Manasseh. Manasseh was a son of Hezekiah, who was a very righteous king. But Manasseh, on the other hand, not so much. Manasseh wasn't a great guy. I want us to read about Manasseh. And first, first, I want us to do this. I think it's really important. I debated on whether or not we were going to read these verses, but and, and it is a bit of a lengthy read. But I ask that you bear with me because I think it's important that we feel the weight of exactly the kind of person that Manasseh was. If we look in Second Chronicles thirty-three and start in verse one. We're going to down, go down through verse nine. So Manasseh was 12 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 55 years in Jerusalem. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, according to the abominations of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. For he rebuilt the high places that his father Hezekiah had broken down. He erected altars to the Baals and made Asheroth, and worshipped all the hosts of heaven and served them. And he built altars in the house of the Lord, of which the Lord has said, In Jerusalem shall my name be forever. And he built altars for all the host of heaven in the two courts of the house of the Lord. And he burned his sons as an offering in the valley of the son of Hinnom. And used fortune telling and omens and sorcery and dealt with mediums and with necromancers. He did much evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger. And the carved image of the idol he had made set in Jerusalem, which I, 
in the house of God, of which God said to David and to Solomon his son, in this house and in Jerusalem, which I have chosen out of all the tribes of Israel, I will put my name forever. And I will no more remove the foot of Israel from the land that I appointed for your fathers, if only they will be careful to do all that I have commanded them, all the law, the statutes, and the rules given through Moses. Manasseh led Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem astray to do more evil than the nations whom the Lord destroyed before the people of Israel. Manasseh, Manasseh was very wicked. Some of the things that stand out in there is that he led many people astray. He led a whole nation astray. And that he sacrificed his own children to pagan gods. He set them ablaze. We imagine the wickedness of this man. And in the same spirit, I had a friend who had done a lot of bad things. And his guilt crushed him. And we talked. We talked for long hours about these things. And I, I told him, I said, you can still be right with God. But his response, no matter what angle I took, no matter how many long hours I spent sitting there and studying with him and talking to him, it didn't matter because in the end he would always say this. I feel like I don't deserve God's grace. And it just frustrated me so much because he got it. He got it, but he was using it as an excuse. No, we don't deserve God's grace. But that doesn't excuse us from obedience. And it doesn't stop us from pursuing that standard that he set out for us. God, he wants to extend that grace to us so much. No matter how much wrong we've done. Even if, we've, even if we led an entire nation into idolatry. Even if, we've, even if we've sacrificed our own children for idolatry. It doesn't matter. God wants to give us grace all the time. Even if we're as rotten as Manasseh, he'd still, he'd still give us that grace. If you look in verse 10, I'll show you. I'll show you that. I'll show you that God's grace can fully cleanse anyone, no matter the sin. In verse 10, the Lord spoke to Manasseh and to his people, but they paid no attention. Therefore, the Lord brought upon them the commanders of the army of the king of Assyria, who captured Manasseh with hooks and bound him with chains of bronze and brought him to Babylon. And when he was in distress, he entreated the favor of the Lord his God and humbled himself greatly before the God of his fathers. He prayed to him, and God was moved by his entreaty and heard his plea and brought him again to Jerusalem into his kingdom. Then Manasseh knew that the Lord was God. God didn't owe Manasseh anything. Quite the opposite, quite the contrary. Manasseh had trampled all over God's law, all over his people, and led them down all kinds of wicked paths and ways and gotten them lost in the weeds. But then why? Why does God keep extending his grace? Titus chapter 3 and verse 5. Titus chapter 3 and verse 5. He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. God doesn't pick and choose and say, that guy, he's so righteous. I, I, I want to save that guy, but everybody else, it doesn't matter. You, I want you above everybody else. He doesn't say that. God, he wants all of us to be saved. When we understand this, when we understand the cleansing that God wants to give to us, we can have a deeper appreciation for His grace and for what He's trying to do in our lives. And it'll be easier for us to shed the sins that are clinging to us. 
when we understand why God is trying to cleanse us, why He's trying to purge out the darkness from us. When we appreciate that, and when we understand that, we won't resist so much. We won't fight against Him so much. We won't, we won't be so selfish. We'll understand. And when we do that, we'll have something that I think, I think a lot of Christians struggle with. I think, a, I think a lot of us wonder sometimes. And we sit and we wonder, does, does God really love me like He says He does? does am I going to make it? Am I going to make it? Is He still here with me? We might not think those thoughts explicitly, but we feel that way, don't we? And so I think that God's grace, I think that God's grace, I know that God's grace, it can, it can, it can give me security. It can make me feel grounded when I'm in distress. It can give me hope. And it can teach me what I need to know and what I need, who I need to be. And that, that that can ground me. God's grace gives me security. I used to think in the beginning, I kind of overcorrected a little bit, let's say. I used to think in the beginning, man, I've been so rebellious. Couldn't follow a rule to save my life. That was one of my, that was one of my big personality traits. How people knew me. It's a punk kid. So I overcorrected and I said, well, now that I'm a Christian, all I have to do is obey all these rules and I'll be the person that I need to be. As long as I follow this bullet point list of things that I'm supposed to do, I'll be the person that I need to be. And I still think this way sometimes. I could catch myself doing it and I still think some of us do. I think that weighs on us. And I'll explain how in just a minute. I know it did on me. It weighed on me a lot. The more I learn about God's grace, though, the more I understand that there's so much more than, so much more than keeping just a list of rules and a list of commands. If I think, if I think that, that that's what saves me, if I think that abiding by these laws and following these bullet point list of commands is, is, is what's saving me, then I'm sorely mistaken. Jesus taught about that. Jesus taught in the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector in Luke chapter 18 now. You'll turn with me in Luke chapter 18 and look through verses 9 through verse 14. Jesus here talking very candidly about attitude and about, about the inward person. He gives this parable. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me. I am a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. Why? For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. So I know that John chapter 14, verse 15 is true. If you love Jesus, you're going to keep his commands. And I know that you can fall away from grace just like the brethren in Galatians chapter 5 and verse 4. I know that that can happen. And I would never deny that. It's what the scriptures teach. However, I will not preach nor teach that just keeping a list of commands and of rules and just believing a doctrine is what saves me. It's not. What saves me is God's grace. God's grace through faith, my obedient faith, is what saves me. Without that, I'm nothing. 
Without that, I'm not righteous. Without that, I'm in no better shape than anyone else. And we need to know that. That God's grace is sufficient to secure our souls. Why? Why do we need to know that so much? Because we all sin. There's nobody in this room right now who they're going to be able to keep a list of every commandment and at the end of the day, they're going to check this off. I kept this, 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 I kept this. There's nobody in this room that can do that. I can't do it, I've tried. I'm just kidding. <laughs> if, if, if we think that, if we think that is where salvation comes from, we're sorely mistaken. God's grace is what saves us. This grace should affirm to us that God, God's going to work with us. So long as we have the kind of faith, the living faith that He prescribes. That as long as we're willing and that we're repentant, as long as we're growing, that like a gardener and a sprig, a young flower bursting through the soil, that God's going to keep watering us. And that He's going to keep tilling that soil. And He's going to keep watering us and watering us until, until we're in full bloom. Until we're bearing fruit. Until we are who we need to be. God is going to be here with us. And when we believe that, and when we trust that, I think that spurs us on to greater obedience to God, not less. And why is that? Because if we look in 1 John chapter 4 and verse 18, we, we can understand this principle from 1 John chapter 4 and verse 18. There's no fear in love. But perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment. And whoever fears has not been perfected in love. Again, we need to have reverent fear for God. We do. If that reverent fear doesn't produce love, it's useless. If we don't have love for God, all this is in vain. Everything we're doing here, going through the motions, standing, singing, moving, bowing our heads in prayer, taking the Lord's Supper, showing up, going after to eat with each other, all these things... Abiding with one another, it's all in vain. It's sand coming through our fingers. God's grace is what solidifies and binds together. It's the glue that holds us. It's what, it's what allows us to stand instead of sink and drown. God's grace is, is a hand reaching down into the water and pulling us out of, temp, of a tempest-tossed ocean. That is God's grace. It teaches us. It cleanses us of our sin and changes us and molds us and moves us and changes us. It makes us who we need to be. It takes us down the path that we need to go. And all through that path, it sustains us and it holds us so long as we're willing to accept it and we're willing to allow God to reign in our hearts and so long as we're willing to be members of His kingdom. That grace... That grace is so powerful. That kind of power that only a king can wield. Only the king can pardon a rebellious citizen in a kingdom. Only the king can say, you are forgiven of your debt in a kingdom. And that grace, that immense grace that God has given us, was fully extended to us. As far as it could go. God reached and stretched as far as we could imagine. That power was extended to us through Jesus the Christ. Jesus came to us to earth. The king wrapped himself in flesh. 
made himself vulnerable to mockery, to beatings, to betrayal, to suffering, to all the problems that beset us. And he came here to teach us. To teach us how to be cleansed. To assure us and affirm to us that he'll sustain us. Even to the point of, even to the point of death. Even death on a cross. He died for us. And in doing that, He defeated death and conquered death so that we could see. We don't have to ask what grace looks like so that we could see it. So that we could experience it in our lives as we follow His pattern and His commands. So that we could be Christians. So what do we do with this? What do we do with this grace? What do we do with the example of Jesus Christ? What do we do with the king that came to earth to pardon us that we turned on and that we killed in the process? Our sin was the reason that he was crucified. Our sin was the reason that that he had to show us grace to begin with. And so what do we do? We don't have to fully grasp why God would do this. How, How exactly... That his mind worked in coming up with this amazing plan of salvation. We don't have to have every Old Testament story memorized. We don't have to understand every doctrine and rule and command of the New Testament. And we don't have to cross all of our T's and dot all of our I's before we get to the baptistry. We have to come to God knowing that we're sinners and that we need help. And we have to come with a penitent mind and with a penitent heart. Jesus said, whoever wishes to be my disciple, pick up your cross, deny yourself and follow me. I think that's where the plan of salvation starts. If you're not willing to die, then nothing else that you're going to do is going to have any fruit. If you love God, you'll be willing to do what He asks of you. You'll be willing to do what He asks of you in order to receive that grace. Not that you're going to earn it. Not that any of us could earn it. But we know that He's extended it to us and this is the way that He's told us. He's extending His hand and He's saying, reach out and take take it. He says, All I want you to do, I want you to believe that I am. I want you to believe that I've sent Jesus to Christ. I want you to have faith. He said, I want you to move. I want you to have that, that, I want you to have action. I want you to change the things in your life that are wrong. Repent of your sins. To confess that yes, Jesus is Lord. He is capable of giving me that forgiveness. To be baptized in water, as Romans chapter 6 and verse 3 through 5 says. That we could be joined with Christ in that great act that He did to overcome death and being crucified, buried, and risen again. If we do that, if we appreciate God's grace, if we can see it, then now's the time. Now's the time to come forward and reach out and accept that grace as we stand and as we sing.